Hey, and thanks for tuning in to another special edition of Christ Alone Podcast. Uh, on this podcast, we'll be listening to the final audio from the Bible study that we did through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we did six weeks of this, so basically that means we flew through at light speed the Gospel of Mark, and we just painted with real broad strokes, kind of some themes running through it and some discussion about it, just trying to kind of get a feel for the overview of the book. So what you're going to hear in this study is just us talking through this. We spent some time at each study just reading through the chapters that we were going to be discussing. And uh, the heart behind that was just the importance uh, that there is in reading and hearing your Bible being read. So to mimic that, here in this podcast, uh, we will start off by reading chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of Mark before we get into the content of the study. So uh, if you like what you hear here or you have any other questions about the gospel or anything else and would like to get a hold of me, I'd love to get your feedback. Um, you can probably get the hold of me the easiest on Facebook at facebook.com backslash dolechek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K, or find other um, podcasts at the podcast feed page, which is Christalone.podbean. Com. If this is the first Bible study that you've ran into, just note that there's five of them that came before this one that might do you some good to just go back and start there at the beginning. But without any further ado, we will get into the body of the study, and I will start with reading uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapters 14, 15, and 16. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before beforehand for burial and truly i say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her then judas iscariot who was one of the twelve went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them and when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him and on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the passover lamb the disciples said to him where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the great gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, 
Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women from looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In brackets we have, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which is the rest of the text that we'll read. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told them, told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover." So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right, we got just a little bit of ground to cover in our remaining 20 minutes, so uh, that's the way it goes. Um, these are broad strokes, so we can... I mean, Gosh, this section, this is, I mean, this last week, these last two days of Christ's life, um, these are really pivotal in our faith. So we aren't going to be able to spend all the time we could. But we will get through what we can. Um, Mark chapter 14, we see this starts out with, Mark is, does sandwiches here. And like we know that last week he did the sandwich of the fig tree, the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple. And here we have this plot to kill Jesus, Judas betraying Jesus, sandwiching around this uh, breaking of the alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, um, that we learn from uh, John's gospel, Luke's gospel. That's Mary is the one who um, is actually breaking. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus oh. and Bethany, who is, is doing this act here. But... Um, there's this sandwich going on. We see four kind of people, and this is what I, I have four responses to Christ there. We see this first is these chief priests and scribes, they're hostile to God. And, and you know, I think that there's some, you can kind of classify people in one of these four realities, I think, but they, they're, they're hostile to Jesus. They want to arrest him by stealth and kill him, uh, not during the feast. So there's the people who are, really hostile, blatantly hostile towards Christ. There are those who are super close to Christ, but really don't get it at all. And that description is Judas. Here is someone who is handpicked by Jesus, has been with him for three years. Actually, he runs the money bag, so he's the treasurer, um, for whatever that means, for both of their coins. But um, he's the treasurer, been with Jesus, has seen all the miracles, has been involved in all of these things, and he just doesn't get it. He is close in proximity, but as far away as you can really be from really knowing Jesus. And there are people out there that are close in proximity to things like church, to the Bible, to whatever, but totally missing the whole picture, and that describes Judas. The third kind of person is the interested but kind of skeptical people. So we have Jesus gathers at this house of Simon the leper, and he's there with the disciples and some others, and this act happens, right, of breaking this pure nard, uh, this very expensive perfume. And and what do they say? They are indignant. Uh, what are you doing? Uh -huh, that's a year's worth of wages. So, I mean, the estimates that I have heard coming down from commentaries, this is about 40000 not 400 a year's wages. Yeah. <laughs> $40,000 is about the amount. They think this is probably worth in today's dollars. Of This woman takes this very expensive ointment. We don't know if she was a rich woman. 
this is just her perfume that she had, or if this is like her family heirloom. I mean, it's, we don't really know, but all we know is this is a very expensive gift she breaks at Jesus' feet. But these people, the third group of people, is they are they're interested and, and they want to hear about Jesus, but they just still they have some reservations. And then the fourth person is this woman who um, sees the value of Christ and wants to spend. Um, the reason why I bring up and want to spend a little bit of time here is because it does seem like this has been a, a tension in our conversations through the Gospel of Mark of um, this high valuing of Jesus. And you can kind of boil it down to the wrestle that we all have as sinners of what does it mean to really love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? What does it mean to hate my my father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, and children compared to Jesus. How is this even possible? Well, here Mark is bringing up again the immense value of Jesus. Um, you know, if if anyone were to come up to to me with a, a you know a forty thousand dollar gift, and you're all kind of like, what? You know, I don't know what it is. It's a just really, it's a really nice watch. You brought me a, a Rolex for those forty thousand dollars. I don't know. A really nice, really, I don't even know what's cost forty thousand dollars. I'm like, uh, car. Yeah. and they yeah. kind of they bring a new car. A house. And, yeah, and exactly. <laughs> they pay off my rest of my mortgage, something like that. And it's like, oh, that's. And then, um, and my response is, well, you know, I'm worth it. That makes sense to me. You all would kind of have a problem with that, wouldn't you? Be like, that guy is really full of himself. But here, Jesus. That's kind of what they're like. Like, what in the world? $40,000 on your feet. They use the excuse of the poor, which... It's just an excuse. Uh -huh. I love the response. You'll always have the poor with you. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> now, there's there's both there's two ditches to get in on this one. And it is, and it is the ditch of Jesus doesn't care about the poor, which we know is not true from the rest of the Gospels. He certainly does. But another ditch is, is this, um, is yes, this idea that people often take of these people who are interested in Jesus that they use the fact that there's poor people to club everyone else with um I don't know what Not their decisions they like uh you buy coffee at Starbucks don't you know there are poor, poor people, people that yeah. you know you could buy you know what I mean mm -hmm. so there's just, there's all that kind of club but anyway the point of why I want to bring this up is when we talk about um loving God with all your heart mind soul and strength and we talk about being able to choose Christ over all other things, we don't want to think of it, and I'm not sure I've stressed this, and I want to try to stress this, it isn't about devaluing everything else in your life. It's about giving that which has the most value its proper place. So we had at the hypothetical discussion of, uh, I don't know if I love Jesus or my husband more, and what would I do if I was put in that decision? Well, yeah, we, you know, that's, is that good? But the reality of loving Christ doesn't mean you need to love your husband or your spouse or your kids or all these things less, unless we're talking idolatry, then it's a different issue. But the, but the, the key is not in devaluing all these other things, but it is, are you valuing Jesus for how much he truly is worth? And so where we could spend some attention and spend some time focusing on is not trying to you know, make this list of don't, don't care about my husband, don't care about my wife, don't care about my kids, don't care about my job, don't care about money, don't care about any of these things, and you make a big long list of don'ts instead of making one really big important list of do, which is value the one who is most valuable. And and so if you, this is kind of what I think this woman is showing to us, this and what Jesus accepts from her is this extravagant valuing of Jesus for who he is. This is the only anointing he's, I mean, when you think about what he's getting ready to go through, I mean, what's coming up next is Passover, and then he's going to be crucified. He's going to be shamed, mocked, hung on a cross, murdered. And so there is a real sense in which this is the last act of that someone, and it's extravagant, but in light of who he is, it's appropriate. <laughs> and so, you know, we're just trying to push on Christianity can easily become into a list of don'ts. And we've all grown up in a Christian culture that is about 
don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with those that do, right? And that's kind of the the hymn of <laughs> Christian sanctification. <laughs> don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't, don't run with those that do. It's all about don'ts. And what we see here is this isn't don'ts, this is about do. And it is, it is do treasure Christ for what he really is worth and what he really has done, which is what we see what he has done. So those are kind of four responses to Christ. Judas... Um, Bad choices. Uh, he he uh, for thirty pieces of silver, which is approximately I think two thousand dollars, is what I read some of some of them. That for two thousand bucks he sells out Jesus, and sin never pays out the way that you think it's going to. I mean, and that it, it just never does. I mean, and we in the moment we never see it this way, and we have to tell ourselves. But sin can convince us that it's profitable and it can convince us that it is the right choice and it can convince us that it's the thing we want to do but sin never pays out the way that we think it should and he trades jesus for two thousand dollars and where does judas end up he ends up dead he ends up dead mm-hmm. hung himself his guts split open okay. in the field of blood that's more information <laughs> well, it's, it's that's by survival it's right in there <laughs> he falls on a rock and, and he busts his guts out so that's uh that's Judas and we can spend a ton of time there but we're not anyway you can look into it more yourself so we go into the Passover and this is a huge Christian theme I want you to flip back to Exodus chapter 12 because I mean substitutionary atonement is at the center of Christianity now this is actually a front that this is a frontline battle for theologians in our modern church. Exodus is the second book of your Bible. Exodus 12, 12 I Exodus chap- chapter Start 12. Exodus chapter 12, yes. It's, uh, it's in the whole chapter there. But. We're not going to read the whole thing, right? This is, a, this is the frontline fight of what kind of atonement does Jesus provide. And, and the atonement position that I have is substitutionary atonement. I think it's the biblical um, atonement. That it's, and it's... Penal substitutionary atonement, P-E-N-A-L, penal as in penalty, <laughs> substitutionary atonement. I know it's, I'm sorry. What's the big word for that? Isn't there a big word to describe all of that? I don't know. That's the biggest word I've got. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, what big word that covers all of it? I don't know. Okay, never mind. Penal substitutionary no, I'm atonement. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the category that, and, and we get this from this Passover. So, do not time to go through the story of but the the God's people are in Egypt and they've become under slavery, right? We know from Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph is the last four chapters 48, 49, 50 of, of Genesis. People end up in slavery in Exodus. Moses rises up and God at a point he calls him and he's going to be their deliverer, leading them back out of Egypt. And then these plagues come along. And the last plague is this death of the third, of the firstborn. That every firstborn cow, every firstborn whatever, every firstborn child is going to die unless a sacrifice happens. And so we have the Passover. So, um, is it male? First male, yeah, yeah I think it's good. Male. Firstborn males. They're the most important. <laughs> Well, in this patriarchal culture, yes. <laughs> so, Exodus chapter 12. Let's read verses 1 through um, 13. So, I'm going to read 6 and then 6 or whatever. 12, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person that you The animal you choose must be a year old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the side, the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat, where they eat the lamb. The same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. <clears throat> eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Hmm. 12 and 13. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So they call it Passover because they're real original with their names. And what was going to happen is that (laughs) the angel of death was going to pass over all of these houses that had done this sacrifice and had taken the blood and had put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door of the house. And so if the blood from the sacrifice, if a, a, a lamb's blood had been shed, and I know this is graphic for our culture today, but this is what was going on, was this substitution of a death of a lamb, the blood, and then the angel of death would pass over. This is the this is the meal that Jesus and the disciples are sharing here in the walls of Jerusalem, the Passover with the disciples. It is this meal. So going back to Mark, we see that there is this bread and there's this cup. This is also the institution of the Lord's Supper. So when someone does communion, or whatever you guys call it, I mean the Lord's table, this is where this is coming from, is the, the body symbolizing the, the body of Jesus, the, the bread symbolizing the body of Jesus Christ, the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ. Um, in this meal, one thing is absent, and it is there's no lamb. Okay? There's bread, blood, there's unleavened bread, there's, there's the wine, um, there's no lamb. Where's the lamb? Why is there no lamb? He's the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. So, and, and we know this, John the Baptist says, you know, when he says, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is this substitutionary lamb. Who's, he's going to sacrifice himself. He's going, his blood is going to be shed unto death. And everyone that, that blood covers is going to be passed over by the angel of death, the wrath of God. So, there's, there's Passover in a very broad stroke, but this is, this is that the heart of Christianity is substitutionary atonement. The wrath that should go on you is, goes on to a substitute so that you will be delivered. You'll be passed over. So institution of the Lord's Supper, and we could do tons of things there, but we're going to move on unless you have questions, comments, thoughts on Passover. Peter's denial... Uh, Jesus predicts it, and it happens, uh, just like he says. Lots you could get from there. We're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a common place where they went. This is where Judas is going to betray him. Jesus, how often have we seen Jesus? I mean, is Jesus, does Jesus ever get riled up? Do they ever get befuddled? I mean, the disciples are befuddled all the time, never know what to do. They're in the boat. We're going to die. Jesus, peace be still. You know, and, and then there, and Jesus is walking out on the water. I think it's a ghost. And he's just walking on the water. A demon's come at him. I mean, if a demon or a demon possessed people, he just throws a demon out. Jesus gets to the garden, and what's he is distressed and troubled. What is, what is going on that would cause the unflappable Jesus to be distressed and troubled? It says in verse 33, He took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And he goes and prays, and they fall asleep. And then he comes back and chastises them. And we could, but three times. Mm-hmm. But what in the world would be so incredible that it makes Jesus scared? Well, he already knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. This is getting closer than it's ever gotten. Yeah. And verse 36, we see what this prayer is. Prayer is, he said, Abba, Father, 
uh, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is the cup? Well, see, a lot of people think that it's just the death itself. Mm-hmm. At least Fitzpatrick says that it's the separation from God mm-hmm. that's coming. Mm-hmm. The the fact that all of the world's sin is then going to be placed on him. His father, who he'd been with since eternity, is then turning his back mm-hmm. on him. Right. But I, I don't I well, know what you're looking for. I'm not looking for it. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking for something. Yeah. Alienation from God as father at the cross. That's from Hebrews 5. There you go. And I, said, and I think that, that you're right on, Amanda, that there is, of course, this worry, this concern about what's coming up. But, yes, there there's a cup that is coming. And we could look at Isaiah 52, 11, and Ezekiel 23, or Isaiah 51, verses 17 and 22, and Ezekiel 23, 32, which is talking about the cup of wrath. And the Old Testament has this picture of a cup of wrath and that there is this anger that God has and it's called a cup and his judgment is a cup of wrath that he's going to force people to drink and this is most likely the cup that Jesus is talking about he's going to drink the cup of the wrath of the father when we talk about the apostles creed we said that he descended into hell now I didn't mean he actually descended into hell but that he really died was buried in the tomb he actually is going to suffer uh, Tess read it quite well, actually. The Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sakdakthani, or whatever the word is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is coming. A, a man, a God, I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about the Trinity. <laughs> is going to be, that is known unity for all of eternity, is going to be forsaken by taking the wrath that is deserved by other people on himself. So it troubles him. So, I don't know. There we go. It's startling to think about what Jesus is actually getting ready to go through. Barabbas is amazing, uh, interesting. They choose to release a criminal and send Jesus to the cross. Um, Barabbas, interestingly, the name, if Bar meant son of, uh, and Abbas, Abba, means father. So Barabbas' name son of the father <laughs> and jesus is the son of the father i mean so there's some there's some interesting things going on with barabbas but i mean what we see there just clearly is that that the man who is condemned and deserves to die is set free and the man who deserves life and deserves to be set free gets death again substitution coming right to the forefront for us of of um of uh, well, the forefront of the gospel for us to see of what the what's going on here. So I skip a bunch. We got to get going and finished. Peter does deny Jesus, the crucifixion in chapter 15. Any, I mean, shout something out if you need to or want to clarify on anything or just something you thought was interesting. What happens in Mark's gospel with the crucifixion the, the line, verse 24, they crucified him. Now, we could go into a ton of detail about how awful the physical pain of crucifixion is. Mark doesn't do that. What he's highlighting here is in several places from 16 to 32 is the mockery and the shame that comes along with this crucifixion. Mm-hmm. These they, they put a cloak on him. They beat him with this stick they put in his hand. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They spit on him. They lead him out to crucify him. He's crucified by robbers, people who deserve to be condemned, one on his right, one on his left. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. They're not they're not asking it, they're they're mocking him. They're saying you're I mean, I don't want to get graphic, but we could think of ways that you would be this isn't like nana nana boo boo kind of mocking. This is, you know, Every foul thing you can think to say to someone hanging on a cross, they're shouting at him. They say he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from on the cross. We may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus is mercilessly shamed. And here again we see this substitution. The one who 
deserves no shame, who deserves honor, receives shame. And, and, and we see at the cross, all of us who deserve shame. Now, shame is a tough topic in our modern culture because they think, well, you should never be, don't be ashamed of who you are. You're who you are. Don't be ashamed. But the reality is, as a sinner, there are things to be ashamed of. I think we all kind of know that with, with you, around kids, you kind of sometimes want to say to them, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and that there is such a thing as shame. And, and as a sinner before God, there is a reality of shame. What we see here is the shameless one receiving shame so that those who rightfully should be ashamed might stand before God shameless, blameless. There in Colossians, we could go to it talks about that we stand before him blameless through the work of Christ on the cross. So shame is a big part in there. The death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus. Gosh, these are fast, broad strokes. You know, he shadowed this this thing out. In my Bible, it says, at nine in the morning, he was crucified. And then at noon, darkness came over the whole land. And then at three, he Mm -hmm. cried out this saying, you know, know, my God, my God. So is he still on the cross then? Mm -hmm. The whole time, that was the purpose of He's on the cross. And in fact, he died rather quickly. Because we see that Joseph of Arimathea comes Mm -hmm. to Pilate. And Pilate's like, he's dead already? Because normally in the other Gospels we see they go around and they break your legs. Because they, they didn't want them to did be they there. Spear his side, though? Huh? They spear his side. They did spear, they they put a spear through his side to make sure he was dead. Um, the way you die on a cross is that you most likely are dying from shock. They don't they, Nails in your hands and your feet, you're not going to bleed out. Right. They're not in an artery. So you either asphyxiate or the shock of, which would suffocate. Because when you have your arms up like this and they crush your legs, you... you it hurts to hang on your hands, and it hurts to push up. And so eventually, sometimes they would suffocate. And and so to aid that, they'd come and break their legs to help them suffocate faster. I mean, it's awful. But but Jesus, there's something. Jesus is in charge of his death, you can kind of see. And he gives up his spirit. Jesus dies. And, uh, yeah, he dies at 3 o'clock. I mean, so, yeah, there's... It's a long time. It's a long time. could have been longer. But, I mean, but it, again, the... The main. So he says that right before he dies. Then. Yes. Okay. Yes. He breathes his last. There's the seven last sayings of the cross, and you can. A. W. Pink wrote a book about the seven last sayings, and we don't have them all here. We have this last one, or the last one is in your hands. I commit my spirit. We get from other uh, passages, other gospels. But yeah, right there he dies. Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes him down, wraps him, and puts him in a tomb. For I mean, in response to Isaiah 53, he's buried with the rich in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Don't have time for that. Um, but yes, he dies at about 3 o'clock. There's some play on darkness here. Everything's happening in darkness. They arrest Jesus in darkness. Judas goes and betrays him in darkness. Jesus dies in darkness. Three hours of darkness from noon. Something supernatural is happening there. It's not an eclipse. It's not a dust storm. Darkness is over the whole land until the ninth hour, until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then he gives up his spirit and dies. They wrap him, put him in a tomb. Ladies come to ladies come to give more ointments after the Sabbath day, and it's gone. He's gone. It's gone. He's not there. Angels show up, and uh, and well, we get that from other passages. No, he's in a tomb. See, a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. They were robe. They were alarmed. Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. So um, one thing that's interesting is the fact that women show up to the tomb. And this is not me being misogynist, but back in their culture at their time, women were not reliable witnesses on a court of law. Like, And I, there was an interesting thing I read that Tim Keller brought my attention to that it was around the second century that a guy was saying about the Gospels. He was talking about um, the fact that women came, how interesting it was, because we all know women are hysterical and are not reliable. <laughs> that was this quote from this guy writing in the second century. So, I mean, it's, and so there's something to the authenticity of this account. If you were Mark writing this, you would never have said women found Jesus. You just said dudes showed up and found Jesus because they're reliable, they're not hysterical. But Mark's just telling the truth. And the way it went down, women showed up and Jesus was gone. Now, 
talking about being clueless. No one's there. You think they'd have heard I'll raise three days later. Why wasn't everyone there like watching? Is it gonna? Waiting is it gonna? Yeah. He told them that it would. He told them, but they they, they really weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. They, yeah, they, so they lost they, all their belief. He died, and they're like, "Well, yeah, well no, no, they lost. They're around. They're, they're hanging around. They're scared because well, their leaders got crucified. So yeah, and they're afraid they're going to be crucified yeah. too. They anticipated a different. Out. They anticipated a different Messiah than what Jesus was in his first incarnation. They anticipated a different end. Well, sure. They thought they were going to overthrow Rome, and and something better happens. He dies for the sins of the world. So, um, let's see. Is there anything? Oh, verse seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And the angel has them go and, and calls his disciples. This is the man. I mean, where do we last see the disciples? Running away naked. <laughs> Denying Jesus, I, you'd think he'd come out of the tomb and be like, "Where are those guys at? I got some. I got a few things I want to say to them." <laughs> and he's saying, he's going before them to Galilee. There you will see him just as he was. He calls, he resurrects, and he calls his disciples back to himself. I mean, there's just uh, the mercy and grace of God is is astonishing. And they still don't believe. Mm. Well. Thomas. Thomas doesn't see, and then he does see, and, and then does believe, and, and certainly they're changed. I mean, they lives get turned upside down once they see and believe in Christ. That, believe it or not, guys, was the Gospel of Mark in very broad strokes, very fast. Honestly, this is one of those books you could take the next six months and just dig into each little issue. There's so much good stuff there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just, my desire... I want us to walk away seeing Jesus for who he is. The woman with the with the ointment was convicting me these past few days, just thinking about this isn't about this is just about treasuring Christ for who he is. Not a bunch of shame for all the things we've done wrong. I mean there is repentance, certainly. But but this Savior came and took our place. This Savior bore the shame that we deserved so that in the presence of God, we might be shame-free. This Savior drinks the cup of wrath that we should have to drink, so that we get the cup of blessing. This, this is the most valuable person you can come across. This is the, he is God in the flesh. We see the centurion says, surely he was the Son of God. And that's what I want us to see. Hope we've seen it. Pray that we would continue to see it. So I got to pray. <laughs> Father, I rejoice in your mercy and your grace towards us, toward me. That, like Romans 5, 8 says, that, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. And all of my sins had yet to be committed. I wasn't even a thought in anyone's head. Yet there my Savior is, bearing my shame, bearing my sin, bearing my wrath, bearing my curse, bearing my just punishment, so that I might be free, so that I might be forgiven. You said, The Gospel of Mark says there uh, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And he is... You are, Jesus is the, the Passover lamb. And I pray that all of us in this room tonight, God, would have eyes to see that and have hearts broken before that reality that we would treasure Christ for all that he is worth, the Passover lamb that he is, the savior that he is, the, um, the high treasure that he is. Give us eyes to see it, God, hearts to believe it and to rejoice in it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, thanks for listening. And as an additional bonus, we um, took 10 or 15 minutes to just talk about some general rules in trying to read your Bible. And I did capture the audio for that as well. So kind of here at the end of the Gospel of Mark study, 
Uh, here's 10, 15 minutes of free content for you to listen to in our discussion, just about some points on how to try to, to read your Bible for, for what it's worth. So hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening. Reading of the text. Nothing replaces a straightforward reading of the Bible. Most of the tools that you need to understand your Bible, you learned like in third or fourth grade, right? I mean, it's, it's just reading comprehension. And so uh, I've heard a guy talk about how much he loved um, reading comprehension tests in elementary school because they have you read a passage, right? And they go down and they ask you questions. And he said, I loved it because all you had to do was look back up at the story and find the answer right in there. You, you know, you understand verbs and subjects and nouns and all of that stuff. And, and really, when we talk about perspicuity of scripture uh, a few weeks ago, the idea is that this book is written for us to be able to understand it. And so what, when it comes to Bible reading, there really is just no way around taking time to just read the text. Now, when you get to a study Bible, there's rabbit trails, rabbit holes, whatever, to go foxholes, to go down forever and ever and ever, digging deeper on. And those are all good things to do, but you don't want to just immediately read a text and then read the notes. You know, you want to take some time to understand the text yourself. Second rule or second note I have is that when you're reading your Bible, the uh, the first rule of biblical hermeneutics is biblical interpretations. There's three big rules, and they are context, context, and context. And so just like reading comprehension, um, anybody else, when you graduated, get like a Bible book of promises or something like that, you know, and there's somebody gives you a, a book of 365 Bible promises or something like that. And you kind of, and they're just little one verse things or something like that. Like, you know, they give you Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not to harm you, give a hope in the future, you know. So they have those books like that, that just kind of throw a verse out at you. You, you have one like no, that? No, my grandma gave me reading a Bible, you know, the, for dummies, the, that yellow book. Yes. It's actually really good. I'm sure it <laughs> is. We have it's, one of those too. It's pretty good. Well, I mean, and, sure. and honestly, I don't have that one down, but when I said the Jesus storybook Bible, I don't have Bible for Dummies down, but when I, like I, that one. When I said like the Jesus storybook Bible, and and this is not to, you know, but if, if you're trying to just get a grasp of the stories of scripture, a lot of times a kid's Bible is a great place to go where it just is telling you the stories of scripture. Now, some Bibles, kids' Bibles, are all about moralism, and so you're going to you're going to just get a story about, it. and then the question at the end is going to be, how can you be like um, Samuel and listen to God's voice? And it's kind of well, how can any, like anyway, anyway. Sure, there's all those sorts of things, um, but they are a great place to go and things like that. There's a visual by there's lots of things out there like that that you can that are good things to go through, but. What's that? Does Kevin DeYoung have a new one? He has a new one, The Biggest Story, and okay. I do. I, we have it, and it's it's good, too. It doesn't go through stories so okay. much as a Jesus Storybook Bible and other things like that. The other thing, third thing I have is Scripture interprets Scripture. So whenever you read a, a less clear passage, it's always to be interpreted by a very clear passage. So if you read a, 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 a section of Scripture that well, it doesn't really kind of make sense what, what he's saying there, or there's, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, but I won't be able to think of any off the top of my head. But when you when you read something, you're like, well, that sounds like he's saying, um, well, everyone's saved. There's passages like in First John that talk about salvation of the whole world. And you read that, and you think, well, boy, if this is, if I go off just this verse, then I'm a universalist, and I believe everyone is saved, and why are we even here studying our Bible? It's all okay. Everyone's going to be saved. Well, that's a maybe a less clear passage that needs to be interpreted by the rest of the Bible. And you'd go to maybe other clear passages that say things about these issues. And so context, context, context. When you have a verse thrown at you, when you hear someone preach in a pulpit somewhere or on TV, if you happen to unfortunately go through by TBN or some show like that, and um, they, they throw out a scripture, um, and you think, well, is that what that it's always helpful to put that back in the context of where it came from. So you can really try to understand like the Jeremiah 29, 11 passage. Is that really a promise for you that God wants to prosper you and not to harm you? Well, you put it back in the context of Jeremiah and this whole scope of history. And you see that it's a prophet or it's a 
prophecy to God's people at a certain time and a certain place that has ramifications for us, but it doesn't mean that God wants you to be prosperous and have all the money you need, which is what a lot of people, sorry, it's just yeah. not, no, crushing all your hopes and dreams there. I live by that. Yeah, well, Bummer. you'd be surprised. Uh, a lot of people do. So um, this book primarily is about God, not about you. Um, this is my fourth thing. What? You were making it. Prosper. Prosper? Yeah. In a lot of ways. He's fine. Okay. So it's a book primarily about God, not about you. We're chiefly looking about what's going to tell us about God, not what we should do. Uh, The fifth thing, if you're looking at going into your Bible, there is memorization and meditation. And I'm always cautious to mention meditation because it sounds like I'm being some sort of Eastern. (laughs) Yes, we're not crossing our legs and making our little hand positions and and humming it to ourselves. But but meditating is a very biblical thing. You see in the Psalms of meditating on the word day and night. Actually, Psalm 1 uh, meditates on the word day and night. And so there's when you read your Bible, yes, you want to read the plain text. You want to let scripture interpret scripture, put it back in its context. You want to spend some time meditating on it, reading over it, and reading over it, and reading over it, and trying to just kind of soak in it, meditate on it, and memorizing it. So there's lots of ways. And when I say memorize, yes, um, maybe in your Sunday school programs you've done like memorizing verses, and that's good. I advocate, and what I try, memorizing large sections of scripture. Like you might make it a goal to memorize something like Romans chapter 8 or uh, the 23rd Psalm is a big portion, of, is, a, is a famous psalm that's memorized. Psalm 1, trying to get big chunks of this book into yourself, okay? So I throw all those things out there and you think, I don't know if I'm, that's, we're throwing a lot out here. Mainly, I want you to approach the Bible, and the way that I try to approach the Bible is that this is a book that I'm going to spend the next 20, 30 years getting to know. Our mindset is, all right, 2016 is going to be the year I'm going to learn my Bible. And I'm going, and so then by January 15th, we're exhausted and we, we're done. And so, you know, we don't make, I mean, have an idea that I'm, I want to spend the rest of my life learning this book. And so I'm not in a race to get the whole thing consumed and just trying to get content covered and then really understanding nothing. So one of the things that a guy named John MacArthur introduced me to is that you might decide to take three to six months learning just one book of the Bible. And so instead of trying to get all the way through everything, maybe you, like we've done the past six weeks, I want to take six weeks, two months, and just read Mark over and over and over and over again so that I get the flow of the Gospel of Mark. Or you want to take Philippians. It's only uh, four chapters. You take, uh, or it might be six. Ephesians is six. So you you want to break it up, and I want to just really get to know it. So there's that. So let's go to the Mark. And and if you've got a Bible that has, you you want to try to find a Bible that's got some cross-referencing at least. But here with our study Bible, we've got all sorts of fun stuff with our study Bible, right? (laughs) So let's just go to the end of Mark chapter 16 because we're going to have to talk about this at some point when we get to it. But, um, and I don't know, even those serendipity Bibles probably say something about Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Yes, so we've got a longer ending here of Mark. And so this is an area where a study Bible is going to help you out. And it's going to tell you about, well, textual criticism a little bit. But... Um, you know, there's just these notes, and so this is one of these important notes here. You go down and into your study Bible, down at the bottom, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, it says, here's some information about this passage, why it's bracketed, and it gives you the reason of some of the oldest manuscripts don't actually include these verses of Scripture. Um, Serendipity Bible says that he says that is to have a note on it, and that one's kind of more about the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark sixteen nine through twenty. Right. And so then, so then the ESV Bible here, study Bible, has got a whole big story about how textual criticism kind of works. About um, you know, we have several different. We don't have any of the original manuscripts of 
autographs, they call them, of the Bible. Like there's no, Mark's gospel is not in a papyrus somewhere. And like, oh, here's, this is Mark's handwriting. We don't have that. What we have, but what we do have are thousands of copies that, that when this scripture came out and was passed down, they took it very seriously. And scribes were very um, dedicated to copy it down accurately. And so what that resulted in are thousands of um, copies out there of this text. And so textual criticism is taking all of these copies and then accounting for the difference, the variances like in grammar, the variances in spelling and different things like that so that we compile them into one manuscript. And then so the, the more research that goes on, well, they've come to find out this has been recognized for thousands, for 1,500 years as part of the Gospel of Mark, but actually probably isn't in some of the earliest manuscripts, was added in. And it doesn't necessarily, if you read your ESV study Bible area there, anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't bring any different points of doctrine. Um, so you don't want to, you don't want to, like, so say verse 17, you don't want to go down here and says, They'll accompany those, signs will accompany those who believe. My name is they'll cast out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with their hands, drinking deadly poison, they'll not hurt them, lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And you say, well, that's what the Bible says. And so obviously this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to uh, speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with our hands, drink deadly poison, and lay our hands on the sick and they'll recover. Well, you want to take a less clear portion of scripture and have it clarified by a more clear portion of scripture which there's nothing that's going to confirm that we should pick up serpents. Actually, there is the possibility of this is coming in here. We see in the book of Acts, Mark um, goes to, or Mark, Paul goes to pick up firewood and is bitten by that adder, bitten by that serpent. It should have killed him, and it doesn't. And uh, the deadly poison, I don't know about that one. I guess I'm trying to think off the top of my head. But they do speak in new tongues in the book of Acts. But anyway, notes down here. Cross-references are a wonderful tool that if you are reading along and you want to find parallel accounts in other Gospels or other areas, and then they'll also highlight you to other uh, places in your Bible that are talking about the same themes. And so they're just they're good ways to get to dig a little deeper into uh, and where you should turn to next in, in what's going on here. So like when we talk about the Passover back here in chapter 14, we're going to get to it. We Okay, I got to quit on this stuff. <laughs> but we have the Passover at verse 22 in chapter 14. Um, 22D. Let's see. Let's see, 24. Said in this blood of the new covenant. If you go down to the note on 24... It's leading you back to Exodus 24.8. It's leading you back to Zechariah 9.11. And also to New Testament, Hebrews 13.20. That's going to lead you to these Old Testament places where the Passover is talked about, which actually is Exodus 12. So we want to lastly engage in exegesis, which is a big fancy word for out of the scripture. There's exegesis and there's eisegesis. Exegesis is reading what comes out of the text, letting the text come out and speak for itself. And eisegesis is reading into the text kind of what you want to hear. So a lot of times the concordance, which you have at the back of your Bible, most you have a concordance. Lots of times the way you engage in eisegesis is you think something along the lines of, where does God say that he loves everybody? <laughs> and then you look up love, and this isn't a very exhaustive concordance, but you find a passage about God loving something, or, and you're like, oh, well, that's... And then all of a sudden you're off to the races. This is my verse now. You've <laughs> taken an idea from your head. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but, I mean, you know, you've so taken an idea from your head and you've put it into the text instead of letting the text come out and read you. Make sense? You want, and you want, to, you want the Bible to be reading out to you, not you reading into the Bible. One cool thing in the ESV study Bible, right to the left of your concordance, is this history of salvation in the Old Testament. So if you read a, a weird, interesting story in the Old Testament, and you're like, what is that? That sounds like Jesus. Might, something might be going on there. There's all sorts of passages here where they're saying, here's the Old Testament foreshadowing what's going to happen in the New Testament, the history of salvation in the Old Testament. So we're going to read about the Exodus, we're going to be at the Passover here in Exodus 12, 6. 
And it's got a note here of deliverance through the blood of the Lamb prefigures the coming of the Lamb of God to obtain final salvation through his death. John chapter 1, verse 29. So that's kind of a cool reference there. So commit, I mean, I, and I, I hope that out of studying these past couple of times together that it's piqued our interest in getting, you know, and wanting to learn this Bible better. I want to know the Bible better. It's helped me. I want to get to know this book. Let the text speak for itself. Plan long. Don't try to knock yourself out in the next year or six months. Plan long. I want to really learn the Gospel of John. I really want to learn the Book of Romans, something along those lines. And read the text and use your study notes and cross-references. So you would just recommend this jumping in anywhere? No. Or, or recommend <laughs> what about this has a 365-day reading plan? Have you ever yes. done one of those? I have. That's, that's through the Bible through the year. And, and I, I try to keep up on that. I don't. I've succeeded several years at doing that, probably three or four years I've succeeded, and then other times it's a lot of reading to get through it in a year. Um, Darla, I think, still holds to hers pretty pretty regularly, but it's a lot of reading. I and made it five days. And you made it five days. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an ambitious amount of reading. I and, like my app phone. And there yeah. is. I like um, yeah. You should peek. Well, yeah, you version, and yeah, then it, it reminds me every day. It pops up. It has oh, exactly what you yes. need. So if you're a phone person, that's the yeah. name. Yeah. What's the app called? It's the U version. Like yes, a letter U. You no, the word U. Like y O U version. Right. And and actually, if you if you go to your Play Store or your whatever store, and you do um, you just type in Bible. Okay. It's the number one Bible app. Okay. And it's done by LifeChurch.tv, and and it's a great app. And there are tons of plans in there, and so. You can pick a plan through the Bible in a year, or you can pick uh, just reading through the Gospel of Mark, and then it'll send you reminders to read kind of the Gospel of Mark or whatever. There's all different plans that come along the ways, and it is—it's a good app that sends you reminders and stuff like that, and it does help you. Just send you reminders. Like, oh, you're sitting in line. Okay. I do first you're... five as my alarm clock, and it—but it's just like a one short little verse. Oh right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I mean, and that's. Uh, there's all sorts of tricks like that, and yeah, it, one of them is a, a through the Bible in a year. It's ambitious to get through a year. You're probably going to read 15, 20 minutes a day, which doesn't sound like a lot until you get kids and 15, 20 minutes. And, but anyway, but it, it's a good plan to get on. There's lots of different ones um, that are out there. You said I would just pick to start anywhere. Not necessarily. I would, like we have done, start with a gospel. Um, I would not start with Revelation. Genesis is actually a really great book to read. Genesis usually has a really good flow and Exodus. Leviticus, you're going to want to jump the ship at Leviticus because it gets a little different. I mean, it just gets tougher. But but eventually, yeah, you want to get through those things. There, there are other books out there, and I don't, I can't think off the top of my head, of a guy who helps you kind of figure out how to get reading through the whole Old Testament and getting the big picture and skipping the right books along the way. Um, but it has, I think, in there somewhere, it has what chapter you should read in what order and what mm-hmm. to get a big, yeah, that way you're to get not, a big picture. It's like to follow the story, he kind of sure, right? <laughs> because it's tough. Because then you know, reading through the Psalms is 150 Psalms, and if you get stuck in there, I mean, they're all great. But then you know, you get into the minor prophets, you get into some of the, you read First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings. They've got overlapping material that's kind of doubling up on what you need to read sometimes. So that, yeah, I'll look some of that stuff up too. And But I would definitely start in the Gospels. I would start, Book of Romans is great. Book of Galatians is great. So, I mean, as far as just, and that's where I'm saying, you know, if you plan on 20 years, I wouldn't be feel bad at all about saying, I'm taking from January to the end of June, and I'm just going to learn Galatians. And it's six chapters. I'm going to read a chapter a day or whatever, six days a week. And I'm going to, I'm going to have read Galatians, how many times that is? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, 24 exactly. times in six months. And so I really get the content of what he's saying. I'm going to read it slow, read it fast. Anyway.